Hello and welcome to this extra special bonus episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy. And this is not my typical bonus content because the fascinating interview, conversation, discussion that you are about to hear, I do not specifically go over the evidence of this case. However, it is very relevant to listen to it, I believe, because this man has insights that are truly fascinating, stepping into the minds of people who kill, stepping into the minds of people who suffer from various personality disorders. We are not diagnosing anyone and we're not making assumptions about a person who has not been properly assessed. However, what you can do is match up some of our discussion with some of the things you've heard. Professor Sam Vaknin is an expert in narcissism. He's in fact a diagnosed narcissist himself. He's also spent three decades studying people and he has a huge experience and knowledge and it's absolutely fascinating listening to him. I actually stop him at one point and say, can you please reassure my listeners I have not told you anything about this case. You've not listened to the evidence. He really hasn't some of the things he comes out with you will truly believe he has because you've just heard it in an episode or it's going to happen in the next episode the full video version of this interview is available on the Patreon but here is my interview with Professor Sam Vaknin It's a real delight to welcome Professor Sam Vaknin who is author of Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited I'm going to let you say more about your vast career and uh, all your various expertise. But right off the start, I want to say a disclaimer that I'm not going to be going into the specifics of this case with you. In fact, you know virtually nothing about it apart from I think I've said that the the um, accused killer, Kit Harrison, is a scientist. He's an above average intelligence. And that's about it. The reason being uh, that I'm not going to ask you to do that, nor would you be willing to, is that you need to do a face-to-face diagnosis, including the PCLR, which is the psychopathy test, and you can only really do that by studying someone and being with them. But and, and which I'm not qualified to do. I'm not a diagnostician. I'm, I'm a teacher and professor of clinical psychology, but I don't do diagnosis. I mean, you need to be a diagnostician. It's a profession. Exactly. But what I am going to do is we're going to talk about some of those personality types. So psychopaths, narcissists, borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. And I will put perhaps some uh, scenarios relating to this case to you, because I think it'd be really good to to get your take on what you think could be going on, which will help educate the audience. Um, And I think this is the most sensible way for us to go forward without creating as i said you know to you before um something that's not accurate or true or sensationalizing something now before we start just introduce yourself in a more expansive way than i did well i've been um, i've been studying narcissists and psychopaths and borderlines for well over 30 years i revived the topic of narcissism starting in the late 1980s so i'm the grandfather of the field in a way the field of narcissistic abuse i mean in a way i coined i coined most of the language in use today including narcissistic abuse somatic narcissists, cerebral narcissists, you name it <laughs> hoovering ghosting i mean all these uh, 
So I coined most of this language and I've written um, about a dozen books on the on the topic. I'm a professor of um, psychology in uh, several institutions and so on and so forth. Um, and so this is my background. Mm -hmm. I've also interacted um, with well over 2,000 people diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personalities, but mainly narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. I've interacted with all of it. We're well over 2,200 actually by now. Right. And they've subjected themselves to a questionnaire and then there were follow-ups, annual follow-ups and so on. And so by now I have one of the biggest, to my knowledge, the biggest database of information about these type of people. So this is in a, in a nutshell. And it's not just research, as you say, it's actually interacting with these people. Yes, um, yes. I've interacted with them. I've, I've administered a, a questionnaire and then we corresponded and then there was annual follow-up, well over 70% of them, annual follow-up for well over 20 years. So it's a longitudinal database and it's rare. I, I'm not aware of anything remotely similar. Mm. Take into account, for example, that most studies involved involves five, seven, 20 individuals is considered a, a massive study. <laughs> so... 2,200 is is a treasure in terms of this of these disorders. Exponentially so, exponentially mm -hmm. so. Now, I'm just going to pick up on that one word, narcissism, which I feel is a more contemporary and overused word. Um, I believe the population of that's made up of narcissists plus psychopaths and some of those other personality disorders is 15%. If we look at the amount of accusations of people being narcissists, it's not, they might have some some of the characteristics of a narcissist but they aren't actually narcissists so could you just break down for me a little bit about what those different personality types are and and how each of them differ and how we can get confused between them first of all we believe that about 15 percent one of every seven people has a personality disorder not only narcissism and psychopathy but one of the 12 or 15 personality disorders so that's the total number as for narcissistic personality disorder, we believe that anywhere between 1% and 3% of the global population have narcissistic personality disorder, and about 1% to 2% have uh, antisocial personality disorder. And here the story becomes much more complex. Antisocial personality disorder has variants and in intensities. The most, the most extreme form is known as psychopathy. But psychopathy is not an accepted term in uh, for example in the diagnostic and statistical manual it's um and psychopathy exactly like narcissism has been mutilated by media hype and online nonsense and misinformation so there's quite a bit of a mess there <laughs> um let's try to make some order first of all we distinguish between personality style and personality disorder so, for example, narcissistic personality style would be an a-hole or a jerk. <laughs> that would be someone with a style. But the disorder is much more pernicious, is a lot more complex than the style, involves multiple psychological processes, involves distortions and dysfunctions in every conceivable level, cognitive, emotional, and otherwise. So disorder is not the style uh, writ large. The disorder is not an exaggeration of the style. It's a totally separate clinical entity. 
And so we deal, we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder. Someone with a narcissistic style is extremely unlikely to be violent, is usually relatively pro-social, collaborates with other people on obtaining on attaining goals, for example, um, is likely to be abrasive and unpleasant and obnoxious even, but is not likely to exceed this. Um, so we are accustomed to coming across people with narcissistic style. The disorder is much more dangerous and much more insidious, and as I said, pernicious, nefarious. So the disorder involves behaviors which are essentially antisocial. It involves a cognitive distortion, a misperception of oneself and of reality and of other people. It involves uh, envy and other negative effects such as rage. So we have a lot of a lot of negative emotions slosh, sloshing about, which is absent in the style. People with style are mildly envious and you know get angry from time to time, but this doesn't become a determinant of their personality. So what is it about the disorder? One could, one could adhere to the list of nine diagnostic criteria published in the fourth edition of the diagnostic and fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And that would be a seriously bad idea because the knowledge embedded in these criteria is at the very least three decades old when I started my work. Um, and so today, um, there is something called the Alternative Model of Narcissistic Personality Disorder, published in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it is far more descriptive. It's far more dimensional. It's far more literary. It re it's reminiscent of literature. Um, it could have been lifted off Dostoevsky or Nietzsche or something. You know, uh, It's not a list. It's not a bullet points that you have to somehow satisfy in order to qualify for a diagnosis, but it's a description or a holistic description of the narcissist. So the alternative model is a step in the right direction, but it is still 20 years behind the International Classification of Diseases, which is a book published by the World Health Organization. And the ICD is far more accurate. Now in the ICD, there's no such thing as narcissistic personality disorder. There's no such thing as psychopathy. There's actually no personality disorder whatsoever. There is a single diagnosis of personality disorder. And then each person manifests this, each patient manifests this diagnosis differently. So for example, if you are dissocial, if you have traits of dissociality, you are likely to be what used to be called psychopath and perhaps narcissist and so on and so forth. It's a lot more flexible, influx kind of thing. And any practitioner would tell you that a typical patient is a narcissist on Wednesday, a psychopath on Friday if you piss them off, and a borderline on Sunday because they've been exposed to stress and anxiety. This is nonsense. All these distinctions are nonsense, counterfactual nonsense. So what is it about these people? Forget for a minute the diagnosis. There's a huge debate about that. For example, we have a debate whether overt grandiose narcissists are actually psychopaths and not narcissists at all. This enormous, the whole field is in flux. I wouldn't rely on anything right now. But what is common to all these people? 
First of all, the inability to perceive other people as separate and external. The narcissist, for example, cannot conceive of you as being outside himself, as owning some kind of personal autonomy or independence or agency. He cannot conceive of this. Why is that? Because he, he doesn't have the tools or the instruments to regard you as external to himself. So what he does, he creates an internal object, an avatar, what I call a snapshot of you. He, internal, he introjects it, internalizes this photo, this photograph of you. Then he photoshops it. This process is known as idealization. And then he continues to interact with this photograph, not with you, never, ever with you. Never. He does not accept you as a separate entity with its own wishes and dreams and hopes and fears and desires and emotions and cognitions. No way. You're not separate. You're not external. You're just a figment inside the narcissist's mind, a figment that is manipulable, a figment that can be idealized and devalued and then idealized again, re-idealized, a figment that, in short, is an extension of the narcissist, an integral part of the narcissist. If you dare to show any signs of independence and, and personal autonomy and agency and self-efficacy, you threaten the inner stability of the narcissist's mind. You're actually broadcasting to the narcissist the way you perceive people is wrong. You're wrong, which in the narcissist's mind, it translates into narcissistic injury, a challenge to his grandiosity. But you're also telling the narcissist you can't control me. You cannot own me. You cannot determine the outcome of this interaction. I, I am capable of abandoning you, separating from you, because I am an external object. So any transmission, any message or any signal that you are not a part of the narcissist would provoke aggression. And if the narcissist is antisocial, it's a subspecies of narcissist known as malignant narcissist. It's a delectable combination between psychopath and narcissist. If the narcissist is of this type, then it's likely to culminate in violence. And if you insist on your separateness and externality, the narcissist would seek to annihilate you, eliminate you and eradicate you, because you will have become a constant source of frustration and a challenge, you're undermining the twin pillars of the narcissist's mind. Number one, everyone is me. Everyone is internalized. Number two, I am godlike. I'm grandiose. This is an intolerable thing. You're threatening the narcissist's life, at least mental life. He can, he can devolve into psychosis if he doesn't take care of you. And the only way to take care of you is to eliminate you. Simply. Now, some narcissists eliminate you, the vast majority of narcissists, would eliminate you by converting the internal image that represents you in the narcissist's mind, by converting this image into a devalued version. We call it the secretary object. In the narcissist's mind, he will have uh, avenged himself by degrading you and debasing you somehow in his mind. It's all happening in his mind. But 
again, there's a tiny percent, about 3% of narcissists who are psychopaths as well. And these narcissists are very, very bound to be violent. Absolutely. And they're very bound to escalate. So at first they would beat you up, but they, they are likely, I mean, they can end up murdering you just to get rid of the dissonance, the clash between who you truly are as an external object and your representation in the narcissist's mind, which is obsequious and submissive and obedient. And you, can, you have to conform to a shared fantasy. The narcissist creates a fantasy which involves himself and you. And within this fantasy, you're allocated a role. And you have to adhere to a script. You have to follow a script. And if you don't do this, you're, you're malicious. You're malevolent. You're aggressing against the narcissist. Um, it's a conspiracy. The narcissist becomes paranoid, paranoid ideation. He becomes hypervigilant. He then becomes violent. That's the sequence, Morgan. Some of the things you described there sound like some of the behaviours that we might see in coercive control or more, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but more sort of general domestic violence as well. Would you say that, I mean, this is maybe too broad a question, but um, that it's likely that usually men who act in that way in a relationship, for example, may have those personality types? No, actually studies have demonstrated time and again that the a majority of abusers, especially abusers in domestic violence situations, family violence situations, um, are not abusive because they suffer from a personality disorder. They may have a personality disorder, but that's not the cause of the behavior. It's more about control. It has to do with the... Um, and mechanism, the, the source, the source, the reason for the confusion is that all these behaviors, coercive control, um, and marital, marital battering and violence, I mean, uh, familial battering and violence. Um, and so all these behaviors are common in relationships with narcissists and an integral part of narcissistic abuse. They are also common in relationships with psychopaths. But, um, their existence that does not necessarily prove or denote this disorder. So every narcissist and psychopath is abusive. Not every abuser is a narcissist or a psychopath. Understood. Now, the mechanism that underlies all these, whether personality disordered or not, the mechanism that underlies all this is known as separation insecurity. These are people who have failed as children to form a healthy attachment with significant others, especially parental figures, especially the mother, but not only. Parental figures, influential peers, role models, even teachers. Children who have failed in the critical formative years, between zero and, shall we say, six, at most nine, they failed during this period to create an attachment which would be rewarding an attachment which would, would lead directly from emotion to action, an attachment that would not be conditioned on performance or on some qualities and traits that the child possesses, some kind of unconditional love, an attachment which would not deny the child its emerging boundaries, an attachment that would encourage a child to separate and become an individual, 
The kind of attachment that feels safe, indeed, the clinical term, is secure base. So all these people, without exception, failed to create secure attachment styles because they didn't have a secure base. They had a, a mother, for example, who was um, abusive and traumatizing, or on the other end of the spectrum, a mother who was absent emotionally, neglectful, or a mother who instrumentalized the child in order to realize her unfulfilled dreams and wishes and fantasies, or a mother who parentified the child. And I'm saying mother because in 80% of the cases, the damage is maternal. And so these people cannot develop something very important, which is known as object constancy. Object constancy is the belief that other people are going to be there for you and have your back even when they are physically absent. And then a lack of object constancy, known as object inconstancy, not surprisingly, leads to separation insecurity, which colloquially is known as abandonment anxiety. The clinical term is separation insecurity. And separation insecurity consists of the unconscious belief that things are going to end badly. There's an association between love and intimacy an ultimate pain, abandonment and desertion, betrayal. So things are going to end badly. And the only way to make sure they do not end badly, only way to secure a favorable outcome, only way to guarantee self-efficacy in relationships is to utterly micromanage and control the partner. Then she won't be able to cheat. She won't be able to betray. She won't be able to steal your money. She won't be able to abandon you. She won't be able to walk away. She, I mean, so the control is twofold. It's emotional. There's a variety of mechanisms that are used, like trauma bonding, like intermittent reinforcement, and so on. So there's emotional control, and there's physical control. And it's epitome. It's you know the exaggerated form of physical control is known as coercive control, which is a crime in some countries. Coercive control is a crime. But all these is a child's, a child's defense against hurt and against abandonment. The abuser is a terrified child, child in panic. Uh, not only reluctant, but horrified by the prospect of reenacting and recreating early childhood experiences, known as adverse childhood experiences. So these are children. And one of the major mistakes we make in, in clinical practice is when we try to treat these children as if they were adults. We strike a therapeutic bug, bargain or alliance with them. We agree on, on treatment goals within a treatment plan, which is ridicul ridiculous. These mostly men, not only men, of course, but mostly men, are children. They're four years old. They're two years old. They're six years old. We need to use child psychology to work with them. We need to help them to develop object constancy, the perception that intimacy could end well, and that love is possible. In other words, that they are lovable. Because another thing they have is a bad object. A bad object is a clinical term for a constellation of voices, internal voices, that keep informing the individual that he is unlovable 
that is unworthy, that is bad, that is inadequate, that is a failure, ugly, stupid, etc. So abusers typically have this bad voice recordings, if you wish. And then they say to and so it's very simple because they say to themselves, I'm unlovable. Why would she love me? I'm unlovable. This is the bad object. Why would she love me? She's about to abandon me. They catastrophize. She, she, she's likely to abandon me. I can't let that happen. I will die. It's a child. I will die. So I need to control her. And if she does abandon me, she's a bad mummy. She, she, I'm, you know, I'm a child and, and she's malicious. She's malevolent. And I wish she were dead. I wish she were dead, you know, which is a child's monologue. So, and you probably saw me smiling a bit there. The words you use there are in letters that were read out during this court case. Um, quite a few of them. The, the ugly, the thing about the child, the, the uh, you know, internal, um, the insecurities, and then ultimately talking about rages as well, which she was afraid of. Um, just on that subject that, um, you know, not not to simplify as sometimes we do is it's just because of a parent that they then end up doing this. But there are there are triggers for people don't they're not just murder. You're not born a, a killer. We're all capable of murder. I truly believe push the right button. And I've sat through many a murder trial and seeing something unfold, you know, reverse engineering it, then understanding how something happened. But with a situation like this where there was there was triggers and I believe a decision was made because then there was planning, meticulous planning. And I've heard you talk about this. It's almost like the art, the artistry of committing the murder. That's how much planning goes into it. And I believe that was the case here. Um, so I've kind of ended up with two things there. One is the, the trigger and then the next bit would be the artistry. But um, I, I know I said I'd avoid kind of going specifics, but I can just briefly tell you trigger of everything you've described about the needing to control, needing to have as an object. And she was excelling more in her career as a geneticist. He was a biologist. Um, she left him and she was seeing other men. So all the kind of, that might be viewed by him as uh, abandoning him in every way and excelling um, and being better than him and living her life, whereas he, his life got smaller. Um, I guess that for me, in my view, be the trigger. I don't know if that's how you could view as a possibility. And then, and then the planning part. I haven't really asked your question here. I've just sort of said lots of things, but do you have anything to say in response to that? I always, I always have something to say. <laughs> so that's my grandiosity. So um, start with the trigger. The whole thing I've described in my previous answer is known as repetition compulsion. It's important. Both words are important. There's a compulsion to repeat. There's a need to reenact and replay early childhood conflicts, presumably unconsciously, with a hope for a different resolution this time. Of course, it never happens. That's why it's a repetition compulsion. It has to be repeated time and again until the narcissist or the psychopath dies. No. But in order to efficaciously repeat 
the early childhood conflict, one needs one needs to select either select a specific type of partner or coerce the intimate partner to play a role to adhere to her part of the script, to be a bad mother or a dead mother, yes, dead, metaphorically, dead mother. Now, some abusers select intimate partners who would recreate the bad mummy parental role. So, for example, promiscuous women. Promiscuous women would do this for them. Uh, promiscuity would justify jealousy, romantic jealousy, would justify the control. You can't be trusted, you're promiscuous, you know. And, and then the shared fantasy is perfect because there's a bad mother, there's a child, but this time the child is in control. And so there's hope for a different resolution, a child-favorable resolution. The other option is when the intimate partner does not conform to the bed mummy stereotype. She actually loves the narcissist or the psychopath. She's caring, she's compassionate, affectionate, helpful, and so on. So then the abuser would use something known as projective identification. It's a defense mechanism. He would behave in ways which would force, force his intimate partner, coerce her into becoming a bed mother. In other words, he, he would trigger her and provoke her to abuse him. This is known as reactive abuse. So he would he would shape he would shape her or shape shift her to become someone she's not. And many of the victims describe a feeling of estrangement or alienation. I didn't recognize myself. It wasn't me. I don't know what what has happened to me. What came over me? You know, it's it's a dreamlike or nightmarish feeling of having lost yourself essentially because you're playing a role in someone else's script. And these are the two possibilities. I don't know what has happened in this particular case, but someone with this profile, it's a bit I think on the psycho psychopathic side, the little that I gleaned, would tend to choose the former. He would choose an intimate partner who would trigger him multiply. So, for example, he is extremely likely uh, to select a mate, mate selection, who would be unusually promiscuous, out of control promiscuous, so as to be triggered and justify the environment, the coercive and, and abusive environment that he creates, the shared fantasy, because he, he would say, well, she is like that. I'm not imagining this. This is not crazy. It's not, it's not even crazy making, but she's simply out of control. And even he would cast it in altruistic terms. She is harming herself. I'm helping her to be, to be become better or to heal. And so there's the guru, teacher, savior, rescuer, fixer thing. You know, I'm helping her to heal. Um, so this is element number one. The repetition compulsion involving uh, type constant intimate partners who would fulfill the role of a bed mother. The second element is a grandiosity. And so the control and the ability to manipulate the partner and mind snatching of the partner, known as in training, clinical terms, all these 
elevates the, the abuser's self-esteem, regulate his sense of self-worth. He feels godlike. He feels grandiose. Now, when the grandiosity is challenged, as I said, when the partner is independent, autonomous, successful, self-efficacious. Self-efficacious is a way of saying successful. When the partner is all of these, or any of these, it would trigger the, the, the narcissistic and psychopathic abuser, absolutely, because it's a challenge to his grandiosity. Similarly, should the abuser decide to punish the intimate partner, to put her back in her place, to reduce her to size, or to eliminate her altogether, he would do it in a way that upholds and buttresses his grandiosity. He, he would feel very smug about having gotten away with it. He would orchestrate, he would create, he would, he would commit the perfect crime. The perfect crime. He would, um, he would leave telltale signs in the scene that he knows can be useless, are useless, at least under the circumstances at that time. Yeah. But it would, it would, aggrandize him, those fools, those police fools, I left them breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, and they couldn't follow the, the track, you know, why? Because I'm infinitely more intelligent than they are. So yes, there's a lot of grandiosity involved in the, in the very act of, of murder, and so on. And this is common to all murders, by the way, even murders of passion, which ostensibly are situations where one loses control they involve the implicit assumption that you have a right to take life which is a pretty grandiose assumption one would say can i interrupt you again i just want you to reassure the people listening or watching this that i have not told you about this case because some of the things you've just said again absolutely um the the, the planning part in that the, the murder was committed, uh, planned, executed, and the behavior afterwards was so transparent, traveling to different location, knowing that he could dispose of evidence. Uh, there was an incinerator at a, a university to work at. He went to a shoe shop and bought new shoes, went and got the watch, all the things that it was circumstantially so obvious it was taunting it was taunting exactly exactly it was absolutely taunting and of course it's, it has now formed part of the circumstantial case of the crime but it was it was literally he drove back uh, you know after this kind of bizarre journey and then got back home and got arrested you know as soon as he arrived back home was like what <laughs> and there's, that... a, there's a developing an incrementally developing sense of immunity the first reaction is invariably panic invariably i mean there's no exception to this even the most hardened um psychopath you know, is a reaction of panic but then as time passes um the grandiose element says you shouldn't have panic you're infinitely superior your intelligence is infinitely superior. There's no way these mere mortals are going to catch you. So there's a sense of developing immunity, uh, which is justified in most of the cases. It's not counterfactual. 
is rational and, and reality-based. The vast majority of, of murderers do not get caught. <laughs> it's it's pretty you know, factual, especially if they're intelligent and so on. And, and almost didn't. Um, and I think due to the scientific knowledge, that's how he almost knew how to carry out the murder having an advanced knowledge of what the capability of DNA, they didn't have DNA profiling then, um, but he would have had a knowledge of that. And then also, you know, not a single fingerprint, but the absence of any evidence sort of showed the, um, what's the word, you know, a, a regular, if it just been a kind of break in and brutal murder by someone else, they wouldn't know how to not leave the evidence that forensically they could then find later on. Also, I think something else I think I'd like to ask with regard to the taunting potentially, but it also moves into the trophy element. This person held on to evidence um, which had actually been seized by the police. Very common. He'd managed to get it back because there was an investigation back in the 70s and then nothing till he got arrested in 2020 apart from me confronting him 20 years ago. He'd kept it all in the evidence bags. When the police raided his home, they they couldn't believe it. It was like a time capsule. And they then were able to seize this back and it had been, you know, hadn't been touched. They actually then used it against him. And also keeping a property, he didn't really have a connection to the city it happened in. Had moved there for the marriage for her job and uh, did leave a year after, never got rid of the house, and then quite an old age, moved back to the city. And again, that was, I think, the taunt to the police where they thought, do you know what? We're going to go for him now. And if he'd stayed away, they might not have done that. So is there something that you can uh, give us an insight into why they want to keep things or stay associated with the property? Is it part of the obsession with their their idea that it was art that they'd got away with it or or what drives that it's a tangible reminder tangible reminder of their days of glory and how they got away with it it it's a grandiosity handle it's kind of handle that's so you see memories dim over time it's more and more and more difficult to elicit uh, the original sense of exaltation and, and you know, and apotheosis, like becoming a god. The very act of killing something is arousing. It's arousing, and this is something that is politically incorrect to say, but it is arousing. I happen to know I was a soldier for three and a half years. Even in war, even in conflict, Killing someone is an arousing experience. At the same time, you have the social aspects of killing, which take over. And so you feel regret and remorse and shame, and you feel horrible that you've killed someone and so on and so forth. But somewhere back there, it is arousing. Because it's as close as you can get to God. It's You become godlike for a split second. You take life. But it tends to fade, this memory. This elation, this mental orgasm tends to fade. And you need to remind yourself of it. What better reminders than tangible? So soldiers as well take trophies, not only serial killers. Soldiers take daggers and belts 
and helmets of the people they killed. Ask any soldier. So the trophies of death, the reminders of death, the remainders of death are there to remind us that we have survived. In any encounter where you try to kill someone, you might well end up being the victim. <laughs> even a woman, even a helpless woman, even a drunk woman, even you, know, you might, anything can happen. And yet you have survived. So sometimes there's survivor guilt, like I shouldn't have killed, it's not okay, thou shalt not kill, so on. But there's always the survivor elation. I'm the one who made it. This encounter of two, I'm the one who made it. She's dead. And I need to remind myself that I'm alive every day. I'm the one who is alive. Because when you kill someone, two people die. The victim and the murderer. They both die. In different ways, of course. One dies physically and one dies mentally. The, the, the taboo is so ingrained in us that even in the most hardened psychopaths, it has an impact. And so you need to revive yourself, resuscitate yourself, resurrect yourself, if you wish. And resurrection is intimately connected to death, not only in the New Testament. Many serial killers, for example, or killers, go through a ritual or a ceremony after they kill. They cleanse themselves with water or whatever. They, I don't know, to take prolonged showers. They, there is, there's always a ritual or a ceremony after the killing. And this is, this is a, the equivalent of a, it's a religious experience. It's not an accident that most primitive religions were associated with human sacrifice. It's essentially a form of ritualized murder. So it's very primordial, it's very atavistic, this encounter between killer and, and, and prey, killer and victim. There's the element of predator and prey, which is animalistic, it's bestial. There's the element of human sacrifice. There's the element of survivor, I'm the survivor, she didn't make it. There's the element of I'm godlike, I've taken a life. There's so many layers involved, even in the most primitive killer. Even intellectually challenged killers have described these, these emotions. And so when you put all these together, you discover that it's actually a form of sex. I know that everything I'm saying is pretty shocking, but it's well-founded. It is a form of sex. It's, it's orgiastic and orgasmic. Okay. I heard your your interview when you you know you, you described the 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 pupils dilating etc and the, and the breath that there's things that are mimicking an orgasm but also the ultimate power over a person as you say God and they are the God and that person's life is in their hands and there's an intimacy with taking that life obviously this is something very upsetting if any families are listening to this but I I, I do understand the physiological it. aspect. The physiological yeah, aspects, the, the, victim, the, yeah. the victim perspires, yeah. the smell, there's fluids, there's, we can't avoid this. this. These are two animals in battle. Yeah. On that subject, um, there is suspected that there was a sexual element in this crime and um, there was sperm found. Um, Which is at, exactly what I just said. Yeah, at, at the location. Um, 
but now whether or not he ejaculated somewhere else because there was no found ejaculation site um but that's another thing that you say that that rape or sexual assault isn't usually about sex it's about the power it's absolutely not about sex <laughs> there's no exception there's no rape which is about sex rape is absolutely about power about the power asymmetry it is the power asymmetry that arouses not the the actual penetration and actually majority of rapes do not culminate in penetration uh, sexual sexual assault i'm sorry majority of incidents of sexual assault do not culminate in penetration it's not about the penetration it's what arouses is the power asymmetry back to the um trophy element is there a part of that as well that's the risk of holding on to it part of the taunt part of the cat and mouse with the police that it was the way I kind of was imagining it when you were describing to, to reconnect was almost like smelling salts to remind them because um, the memory had faded to be closer to that, to be the proximity, to be back living in that property. But, you know, as I say, if he'd sold the house, got rid of the stuff, moved away, never came back, might not have ended up in court. But did And do you think there's anything you could read into the point of moving back? So at such an age, he was, um, well, charged when he was 79, um, so I don't know how many years, probably a few years before that had moved back. Do you think that might have been wanting to get caught or that final, do you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to live no, in that. No, no, no. Killers don't want to get caught. This is a common nonsensical myth online, mainly online and the media, because it looks good. And we want to believe that people are essentially good. And if they've done something wrong, they would like to be punished because this restores the justice and structure and order of the universe. But not one killer wants to get caught. They don't get caught. Their confidence increases. They taunt the environment, like Jack the Ripper taunted the police. So they don't want to get caught. They're playing a game. It's a mind game. And what about they... wanting to claim the authorship, if you like, of it as yes, well? Yes, exactly. It's a mind game. They become overconfident. They want to, to get credit for their work of art. Absolutely. Why do you keep a diary? You keep a diary because that's your handle on yourself. That's your only communication with yourself. The trophies, um, they are a form of diary. This is journaling. He's journaling with objects. So he's journaling with objects, and it's a re reminder of his moment of glory. Killers, murderers, serial or not, even in crimes of passion, glorify the moment they recount it endless times they embellish it they dwell on it they revisit it that's why murderers revisit the scene of a crime it's a, it's a police trope that happens to be true you know? because this is this is the way to capture their lives somehow to document their lives to to render their lives objective they have a problem with subjectivity. They are not fully in touch with themselves and so on and so forth. They need proof that they had existed. These people don't exist. They're empty. They're an emptiness. They're an absence pretending to be a presence. And so they need the outside environment to confirm their own existence. That's why narcissists seek narcissistic supply, attention, adulation, admiration, 
It tells them that they exist. It informs them that they exist. They, they, they exist in a, in a version of themselves that they would like to exist, but it's about existence. This is the same with a killer, especially a serial killer, especially this kind of killer, premeditated and so on. He wants to prove to himself that at one moment in time he had existed, and he had existed in the most existentially meaningful way. He had existed by communicating with another, exchanging life with another being. It, in the killer's life, the act of killing, the moment of killing, is the most meaningful, most meaningful moment in his entire life. Nothing, everything before and everything after pales in comparison. This is it. This is the technicolor moment. All the rest is black and white. All the rest is blurry and fuzzy and dim. This stands in sharp relief. This is where he, he existed to the very endings of his raw nerves. And in a way, it was a collaboration, a joint effort, a collusion, if you wish. The victim was he, the killer and the victim were working together to produce this outcome of unmitigated existence. And so he, he harbors positive feelings about the victim. He feels that the victim was kind of therapist. The victim gave him a therapeutic moment. The victim has transformed him, or the killing has transformed him. That's actually the victim. The victim has transformed him. He bonds and binds with the victim. He gets attached to the victim because she's the only one who succeeded to touch him in a meaningful way. The only one who actualized him. Think of the killer as a form of ectoplasm in spiritist meetings, you know, the ectoplasm. He was a ghost and she converted him into an ectoplasm by dying. Her dying breath became his breath breath of life which has never had before and after so having experienced this apex moment this hyper intensive second he wants to revisit it it's addictive he feels dead he has felt dead before the killing and he feels dead after the killing he wants to revisit the killing this is the only moment that he felt alive and that's why we have serial killers. So, and all these killers are potentially serial killers, but luckily for us, there are numerous circumstances, psychological and other, which prevent them from going on. Mm. I believe in this case, not to suggest that he would have done that, but um, quite soon after, ended up with a, a new partner who apparently looked quite like her, but perhaps she performed the role that he wanted her to perform. And that's why on um, moving on to the, and I'm aware of the time and how much time. No, don't worry about it. But okay. the, the, the getting caught part and what we've witnessed um, in probably, no, it is, it's the most fascinating um, witness box testimony from an accused that I've ever experienced because of his, I would definitely say there's a grandiosity there. Um, there's extreme detail and embellishments of stories. Um, 
you know, it's all, they say it's easy to spot a liar if there's just too much detail there. Um, he does have apparently a newer photographic memory, but um, the 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 reaction to begin with at being told was, um, this is ridiculous. This shouldn't be happening. I've answered all your questions a long time ago. We've been here before. What are you doing here? Kind of thing. Um, but then, of course, then when we get to the point where he has to answer, sorry, he's he's advised to say no comment throughout the entire police interview. He gets three in, and then he has to start talking. And they they they're they're they know what they were doing. They were asking about his academia, and as soon as anything started appealing to his ego, he became extremely. He started cracking jokes and stuff. You wouldn't think it was a you know murder interview. And then, of course, once we then get to the court case, when he's then knows what all the crown evidence is, the stories that we get are just something else. Is there an element um, that would relate to any of the personality disorders we've discussed? Uh, narcissism, psychopathy, uh, borderline, antisocial that fits in with the 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 elaborate lying and the the stories. And the, I'll give you one example. She'd had a scar on her head, which he told everyone. He'd thrown a book at her and she'd had to change her parting. When he's asked about the court, instead of just saying, no, no, she banged her head on the, you know, the boot of the car. He went into a huge story about she was a member of a cooperative and what the weather was like one day and the street that she drove to to go to this cooperative and putting the goods in the boot of the car. And oh, silly her must have bumped her head. It was so specific. That that kind of thing. So what is the question? Which which kind of personality disorder? Uh, can you can you link what I've just described to you with any of those personality disorders? The the over explaining the you know yeah. So first of all, it's important to uh, realize based on facts that people with borderline personality disorder. Are likely to act out they're likely to aggress they're likely to break objects like to throw objects around physical objects they're likely to beat you up <laughs> and so on but they're very unlikely to kill uh, similarly people people with psychotic disorders schizophrenia and worse and so on, they are extremely unlikely to kill actually contra to the to the image that we have of them they're not dangerous actually uh, psychopaths are very are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to likelihood of killing and narcissists are second and especially psychopathic narcissists so we're very likely talking about a psychopath or a psychopathic narcissist premeditation careful planning and so on and so forth are strongly indicative of a psychopath a narcissist is much more reactive, much more impulsive, uh, engages in rage, um, and so on. So a narcissist is, is far more chaotic than a psychopath. A psychopath is goal-oriented, is an optimizing machine. A psychopath is also likely to believe his own charm. He thinks he can charm everyone away. And he thinks by sharing or actually oversharing, because that's a phenomenon you described, he's going to charm people. He's going to he's going to create instant intimacy. If you share, the more you share, the more intimate you are. 
with whoever it is you're talking to, even a police officer. So this creates intimacy. And there is a belief, the psychopath believes, that he can sway people's opinions or people, he can, he can sort of charm them to the point that they would lose independent, um, independent kind of uh, judgment and decision-making and would be under his spell. He can charm, charm them in, in the old sense, in the atavistic sense. He can cast a spell, a spell on them. It's kind of black magic. Yeah? This is a form of something known as magical thinking. Magical thinking is a pathological feature of personality disorders, especially cluster B, the erratic, dramatic personality disorders. And magical thinking says that if I only wish for something to be true, it would become true. My internal processes of thinking, cognition, and emotions, they have an impact on the outside world. So today we have all this nonsense about if you just want something hard enough, you're going to get it. And if you put your mind to it, there's nothing you cannot do. You know, this is magical thing. It's very sick, by the way. All these, the secret and law of attraction. And this is manifestations of sickness. Absolutely. Mental, mental sickness. So the psychopath engages in this. He believes that if he were to inundate you with, for example, details, uh, he's going to make you an ally. He's going to convert you into an ally. You're going to see his point of view. You're going to suddenly be charmed by him. And you're going to understand him. And then you're going to collaborate with him. And so on and so forth. So this is the oversharing aspect. The premeditation, the post-facto analysis, the, these are all typical of a psychopath, actually, not of a narcissist. So the little that you've told me, and I, I made it a point to not read about the case before we spoke, the little that you told me strongly indicates a psychopath, actually not a narcissist. Now, the source of confusion is this. You find many self-styled experts online who would, who's constantly say all psychopaths are narcissists. That is, of course, expressly untrue. Only a very small minority of psychopaths are narcissists and an even more, an even smaller minority of narcissists are psychopaths. But they, all narcissists and all psychopaths have one thing in common. Grandiosity. They're grandiose. So, but grandiosity is common also in bipolar disorder. Grandiosity is common in, in borderline personality disorder, in paranoid personality disorder. So grandiosity is not, is not something unique to narcissism. It's a, it's a trait. And psychopaths have it. So I suspect little that you told me that this person is a psychopath and by virtue of being a psychopath is grandiose. I think you're absolutely right. Um, what I do know of psychopaths and some of that has been through what I've absorbed, absorbed myself through the media, but I, I know, for example, that things that we would describe or think as being someone's personality, for example, charm and charisma, is not that's actually a characteristic of their psychopathy it's a tool they use to manipulate and without doubt even me with i i've had a 20 year history with this case and i knew stuff that the jury did not and sitting there with a clear idea of this man is guilty listening to him i got you get whisked away in his storytelling and his and, and exactly what you said the the mad um, thing of i'm going to just see how it is and where everyone's good and i actually thought 
oh no, the jury might actually, as you say, come on board with it and collaborate with him in his story and his narrative. And it's uh, it it's fascinating to see that manipulation. That there was a psychoanalyst. His name was Bruno Bettelheim. Bettelheim lied about his credentials. His credentials were fake. And yet he became one of the leading psycho psychoanalysts in the world. And he wrote a magnificent book about enchantment and fairy tales. And so the psychopath tries to enchant you, to drag you into his alternative reality, into a fairy tale, into a fantasy. And the minute you succumb, the minute you give in to this charm or to this alternative reality, virtual reality, then you play by the rules of that reality. And everything, you begin to see everything from the psychopath's point of view. It's extremely difficult to extricate yourself after that. You begin to doubt yourself, a process known as gaslighting. So you begin to doubt yourself, your perception of reality, your judgment. You say, I thought he was guilty. I thought he was guilty, but now that I think of it, Maybe he wasn't. You begin to doubt yourself, not him. He shifts the locus of doubt from himself to you. This creates something called external locus of control. He begins to control your thinking processes from the outside. So gradually you begin to vanish. Since you doubt your reality testing, you doubt your capacity to gauge reality properly, you give in to his reality. You say, unconsciously you say, it seems that I'm not gauging reality properly. But luckily there's this guy and he gauges reality properly. I'm safe. If I were to succumb or accept his perception of reality, I would be safe. But if I were to insist on my perception of reality, I am not safe. That's very... It's very low level, it's very reptilian, it's a stem cell, stem brain thing, not a neocortex, you know. Uh, when we have a herd of animals, and one of them leads the way and is confident and knows what, seems to know what it's doing, we all follow that animal to the cliff. To the cliff, apropos Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. we, we are the sheep. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And also by us believing his narrative, makes the world feel better because how could this man aged 82 at the time of the trial it it was it was a difficult thing to kind of connect the two I first met him in his 60s but it occurred when he was in his 30s and it's interesting how we associate someone's appearance and there was one point he was actually out on bail during the trial and I found myself having at times to open the door for him or hold it for him and I'm, my brain was like hold on this is a you know but but politeness overtakes, particularly being British. <laughs> Here you go. There's no way I would slam it in someone's face, but it, it, your your brain wanted to believe that this extremely uh, well-spoken, highly educated, academic, well-dressed man, everything that you would, you know, you, if you pass them in the street, you would never think those things. Yeah. So our brain wants to go to that safer thing. It wants an explanation. It wants a, that, that doesn't seem, seem so bad. Just in the we way- need, We need to believe. Two things. We need to believe that the world is structured and essentially just. And we need to believe that people are good. If we were to accept that people are essentially evil, the quiddity is evil, the evil, the exceptions 
are when people are good, but most people are even most of the time. And that the world is totally random and chaotic and structureless and disorderly, we would fall apart. We wouldn't survive 24 hours. We need to lie. We need these self-deceptions. And another famous self-deception is known as empathy. It's also self-deception, of course. Empathy is not about other people. We have no access to other people's minds. We rely on self-reporting. People self-report and we just extrapolate from there. Empathy is about us. It's not about other people. It's a form of self-deception that allows us to somehow survive as a social species. We're steeped in self-deception. And what the killer does, he rips apart these self-deceptions. He opens a window to reality. And we don't want to look through this. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to look through this window. Because what we are bound to see there is the outer darkness. The killer brings us face to face with this abyss. We don't want to look into the abyss. Nietzsche, you know, said, if you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. So it's very primordial, very atavistic, these interactions with killers. Very. Even for someone like you, you don't feel it. You think you're doing something essentially structured and rational and, and so on and so forth. What I, what I do is, and it's too much to go into at the moment, but I don't pick cases that don't have something that's going to move for, something forward. So it's, whether it's solving or resolving, I've done multiple series of documentaries on unsolved cases, and this is one of them, which helped shine a light. So it's people who they are left stuck looking into the abyss because they've lost their loved one and there is no answer, no perpetrator, no closure. There's never closure with murder, obviously, but um, so I try... No, I don't think it's only... Allow me to interrupt you. I don't yeah. think it's only victims and their families and so on. Look, for example, go online and observe the amazing phenomenon of thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people saying that Chris Watts is the victim. His wife was the abuser, implying that he was right to kill her and the, the two daughters, you know? Victim because is a they sport. can't face the abyss. Sorry. I said victim blaming is a sport. I think actually this point that you've just made brings us nicely to sort of the conclusion, which is really what you're talking about and not wanting to, to look through the killer's eyes or, you know, is we are watching this real life crime true crime which we get muddied up with entertainment to sometimes make ourselves feel better about our own lives like we're going to watch this whoa that's scary whoa i feel more alive because you get close you know we all know you never feel more alive than when you're close to death as is often quoted with regards to wars but it's almost that that that's possibly why there's such this explosion of obsession with true crime um, and particularly among women. Um, I do think there's an element of as well of us pre-planning and problem solving how we would get out of a situation, what we'd we do. But I think a big part is what you're saying there about we don't want to face the horrors. So we face the horrors with a detachment, the same way of watching the news with a detachment. And then, you know, when we do feel for things, when they first happen, there's the empathy, then the empathy fatigue, as you and I discussed earlier. Um, but, I, but, I, but I think that's, a, I think this a quite a poetic end that uh, this is why people will be listening to this and fascinated yeah. by this I'll conversation. Make, I'll make just two concluding comments. 
True crime is nothing new. In the, Mid in the Middle Ages, medieval times, we had what was called at the time morality plays. Morality plays were good versus evil. Now, in many of the morality plays, the evil guy was the devil, Satan. But medieval people believed that the Bible was history, was true, was real. They regarded the devil as an as a absolutely existent entity, not, not as a metaphor, not as a... So morality plays were the equivalent of true crime. The devil committed a crime against God and then was punished and so on and so forth. So morality plays survive to this day and age where we demonize criminals and we... The second thing, the second trend that feeds into all this is victimhood. The famous uh, sociologist Bradley Campbell said that we have transitioned from the age of uh, dignity to the age of victimhood. I would add that we have transitioned from age of reputation to age of victimhood. Victimhood is the organizing principle. Victimhood makes sense of our lives. Victimhood imbues us with purpose and direction. Victimhood explains what is happening to us in a non-random manner. So if you put together morality play and victimhood, you get today's environment, contemporary environment. And this is where we're at. As victims, we are always angelic. We are blemishless. We are flawless. We're victims. We're entitled. We're great. Victimhood is a form of narcissism. And the other party, the devil in the morality play, which happens to be your killer or whoever, he is, of course, totally dem demonic. He's totally bad. And this is known as splitting. Splitting is an infantile defense mechanism where the child divides the world into all bad and all good, all black and all white, or, and so on. And as a civilization, we have re regressed to infancy. And today, everyone and his dog is a victim. And they are in search of abusers, in search of victimizers, in search of killers, in search of the devil, in search of the devil. It's just a modern rendition of the medieval age. Nothing has changed. It's a witch hunt. Some of the witches are real. And I'll give you that. But the motivation is 17th century Salem. Nothing more. Wow. Well, thank you so much. What a fascinating insight. And there's just so much you've said there that's given me pause for thought as well. And thank uh, you. hopefully everyone listening has learned something. And just the complexities, the layers, uh, and actually reversing the end there is that there is a lot of grey areas in the middle. It isn't just black and white, and it's a, a complex situation. Thank you so much for Thank your you time. You're back, and I really appreciate it. Well, wasn't that interesting? I know it got dark, but murder is dark. And I think it was really worthwhile to delve in and hear about some of the motivations and triggers and behaviours that can occur in such scenarios. We're not attributing anything specifically to Kit Harrison. We cannot diagnose him. However, I think there are some things that you might be able to join some dots or recognise. He genuinely 
hadn't heard any of the evidence and still hasn't. So I hope you found that interesting. That was Professor Sam Facknan, and I've put his YouTube and details in the show notes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>